Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Donald Vandergrift today at Quantico. Don served 24 years as an enlisted Marine and Army officer. He's a prolific educator of military organization and training with books including Path to Victory, Raising the Bar, and we're here today to talk about his newest book, Adopting Mission Command. Don, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. I wanted to start by discussing that I wanted you on the podcast because even though you kind of focus on military operations, uh, I see a great deal of overlap with what we do in defense acquisition. So both the military environments and the technology developed environments that we, we have for major systems are they're highly uncertain and they're subject to constantly changing information. And so we have very similar challenges with respect to planning, training, communication. And yet what we seem to have is this modern method of uh, operations and acquisition built on industrial era notions of Taylorism. So can you start by uh, discussing what is Taylorism? Who was Frederick Winslow Taylor and what was he thinking? Frederick Winslow Taylor's approach uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s was to bring a method of management that could be overseen by a few, the work of many. And he became up, he came up with a, a system of efficiencies and rules that if one followed these certain rules and were trained in those rules, uh, in a spe- specialized area, for example, Frederick Taylorism is the true follow, uh, father of the assembly line, not Ford. Ford was smart enough to bring in Taylor and copy his uh, methods for efficiency on the, on the Model T Ford assembly line, okay, which required hundreds of workers doing certain things a certain way, and that made it efficient, cost-effective, uh, as well produced something that was uh, alike thousands of them were alike so today the counter to it with taylorism is while there's some application for it it does not deal well with complexity changes uh, ambiguity and so forth but again it's not to be dismissed as something that was wrong or evil it was appropriate for the time how it impacts us today is Public schools that began in New York City in 1905 adapted Taylor's method called the Compsy Theory of Education, uh, really training, which was used to train thousands of people for factory work. And that's why you have schools that operate on set periods, set breaks, the bell system. All this uh, is a regimented way for people to learn to deal with an environment that requires order and discipline. Uh, and the manager of that system enforces that. So Taylor was right in the period he did. And then the uh, War Department, particularly the Army, said, oh, these methods would be good in managing people as well as how we train them. And there was an infusion after the Secretary of War, Illa Root, left. His follow-on Secretaries of War adopted these methods as kind of like a seed program, and they were expanded the lead up to World War II. It enabled us to raise an army of 8 million in a couple of years, get them the fundamental basics of skills, you know, like how to load a machine gun, how to throw a grenade, how to shoot a rifle, but it didn't teach them how to critically think, okay? Because we thought you separate the two. When what I'm advocating is you begin the two together Task training in context of a problem solving. For example, uh, the way we used to teach uh, clearing a weapon was you clear the weapon, but it was not in the context of a problem. When in fact, what we tell people to do, okay, you're going to clear this. You've got a stoppage. You've got a malfunction. What do you do to fix that weapon? Well, in the old way, they would uh, spout out the acronym, which you stated earlier, Okay, what's that acronym? Sports. Sports. They would act, they would go through the sports process, which is an acronym for clearing that weapon, mm-hmm. but it would be in a sterile environment. So in outcomes-based learning, you go, okay, you have a malfunction. So what do you do? And they'll say sports. <laughs> okay, but 
what do you really think you do? Well, if I'm under fire, I should seek cover, okay? What else should you do? And you're always asking questions because a lot of people can solve these problems on their own, and then they take ownership of the learning when they're involved in the learning versus giving them the answer. So they might say, I tell somebody. Okay, you tell somebody. Then what do you do? Then I, then, then I perform sports. Very good, okay? You always interject some kind of problem solving. This did not exist for decades for the U.S. military. It was all, we laugh now because we say, oh, we start, when you become a major, we'll start making you adaptive. Well, they've already spent 10 to 12, 13 years of their career, if their prior service, maybe even more, being obedient. And it doesn't come like that. You should do it the opposite way. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be adaptive, and there's a method to develop you to do that. Uh, and along the way, I learn the appropriate task to help me accomplish the problem. Okay, so I think I hopefully I answered your question that way. Yeah, um, so it seems like the method to Taylorism is really that you, you take these tasks, you break them down into their simplest aspects, and then you kind of routinize that and, and divvy out some tasks. And, and that kind of takes away a lot of the complexity there and tries to make people interchangeable. I see that this kind of whole Taylorist notion that has been creeping into Department of Defense acquisition and in, in on the operations side through the 20th century and created the institutions that all of us have grown up in. I tend to see this kind of going back to um, the Germans a little bit, actually. So this is a little, I want to get into uh, mission command and how that came from the Germans. But then I also see that there's this um, other aspect of, well, the Germans, like Max Weber, he had his ideas of bureaucracy, right? Straight line hierarchies, zero redundancy. And that kind of led to Taylor's ideas in the business world, also applied into public administration. And then we have, for example, the German Historical School of Economics, which is very anti-market, right? And very pro-centralization of, of decision-making. Efficiency. Right? It's, it's, it's all, all about, about efficiency. efficiency. Right. And there's a place for that. Okay, if I have to, so we call those inputs. Right. I have to produce so many soldiers or Marines a year. I just got to, okay, uh, for whatever strategic reason. Hopefully I've linked it to a strategic reason. Okay, those are inputs. I only have so many rounds to fire, so much hours in the day. Those are inputs. There's a place for them. Uh, what people misunderstand totally about what I'm advocating is it's one or the other. It's not, okay. Uh Adaptability development, though, is the key part because I develop adaptability and critical thinking in a person, then it makes all those other things that are tangible or, or inputs easier to deal with. But because those were things we understood, we tended to focus on those as a way to solve or prepare people for war and conflicts, not understanding that during combat training exercises that these things that are stronger, the intangibles were developed, without understanding why. So we would revert back after the war, during war and training, to these things that accomplished the task, but because we won, we accepted that's the way it got done, without really understanding until science is now caught up with, oh, that's why maybe that person made that decision, because if you look at their background, they were able to get the development required. Well, the Germans... The dilemma the Germans were in was they were a central nation in Europe surrounded by potential enemies with not a lot of critical resources. So they came up with a doctrine that said, I've got to win quickly. I win quickly, I end the war because I can't fight a long war. And because I don't have overwhelming resources or population, I've got to develop people to be better. Okay, So they tended to, to go after the things that we would call intangible solutions or ideals what john boy would call ideals people ideals over hardware whereas us we had a lot of resources we had the two largest moats in the world because pacific and atlantic oceans we had a lot of allies which was strategic smart uh that would buy time for us so we could use the industrial methods to prepare our forces okay we're not we're losing those edges now we're losing those advantages now in this very complicated world where everyone's got off the shelf technology uh, so those things are forcing us to think of solutions beyond mass. 
Yeah, I think the intangibles is incredibly important. I bring that up quite a bit for the intangible front on the technology development side. And you actually start seeing like a lot of entrepreneurs starting to sound like John Boyd. For example, Ben Horowitz mm-hmm. says it's it's the people, the products, and then the profits last. And right. that's kind of like, you know, it's the people, the ideas, and then the hardware. It has a very similar kind of feel to it when you're focusing on the people. And intangibles on the acquisition side you know, it's not just your ability to kind of recognize complex situations and then and then act within that. Well, that's exactly what it is, right? Um, but that leads to certain things in technology development like software. You're not just taking raw materials, transforming that into a standard product down a production line with routine labor, right? You know, you're building new product design. All the values in the product design is not in the metal, right? Silicon right? It's ultimately just sand. And it's really the ideas of how how we put that into the process. It's how did you do it? What are the business processes around it? What training and competencies and supply chains do you have? Those are intangible qualities. So can you talk a little bit about why are the intangibles important? And then what does that lead to in terms of evaluation and how people create an organization that promotes the best, that actually incorporates these intangibles and doesn't just only look at what can be quantified. I can only manage what I can measure, that kind of thing. I can only uh, employ what uh, I can put a number to it. The intangibles are not as understood because, again, as science has evolved, as our understanding of the world has evolved through math, science, thorough examination of history, these intangibles are your strongest things to deal with. The tangibles were there those things that we could measure, we could explain. Now we're able to explain a lot more and understand a lot more, but our learning systems, our measurement systems, our learning systems, the way we develop people to think about them, are still lagging behind. We still have systems where we got true and false and and multiple choice, and we're not training the problems of the context, and we still say we've got to measure it so it's not subjective. Well, the way you measure an intangible is multiple observations of that given problem. Or if it's in the classroom is I divine the outcome. Destroy the enemy at this location in order to support my bigger con- my bigger mission. So those people may come up with a solution you ever thought of, but they accomplish the mission. So what do you look at? You look at how do they make that decision and why they made the decision to teach others to think that way or others learn from it. You're still measuring it. You're just measuring it with observations of of skilled people or measuring it with people that have the experience to understand what went on. Just because they don't have a checklist to apply to it doesn't mean it's not evaluable or assessed. But we tend to still do that. Here all the time, with outcomes-based learning, people go, we need to be able to assess it. We need to be able to measure it. Okay, what's wrong with an experienced group of people like the Germans did in their exercises, general staff officers that were highly educated with incredible background through a lot of problem-solving tests can go out and observe an exercise and see who is better than the other without using a checklist. They write an essay on it. I remember working with Special Forces Q course years ago, 2012, and they had gone to a 20-page checklist. Did they do this? Did they do this? Did they... And justification why they didn't do it or why they did it, versus I talked to like 32 cadre members in a classroom, all had vast experience. One, they went through one of the toughest assessments in the world. Two, they had multiple schools that were tough. They had experience in real combat, experience in operations, and most of them were very well read. I'm like, why can't I just have you observe a person, a leader, for example, on this mission, and what did they do wrong or right to accomplish the mission? Well, having a checklist. They may do things totally. Ranger school wanted to move that way, but they went back to the checklist, not because the younger NCOs and officers wanted to do it by observation, by experience, but the older generation wanted to go by the tangibles uh, because, again, they could justify why they're kicking somebody out. Oh, what's wrong with justifying it if Sergeant First Class so-and-so said, hey, that person just couldn't make a decision at the right time? And this is why, because I've seen it hundreds of times, okay, or I've applied it myself. But I had multiple people look at that and say something similar. You see what I'm saying? Right. 
Uh, so we've evolved. Now we, we know so much more about how the brain works, how people learn. One of the examples I give is I ask all my students when they have a problem dealing with the subjective part is I said, well, how many of you write the evaluations for your for your subordinates? And a lot of them say, oh, yeah, I do. So we trust you to write. That's subjective, isn't it? It's your observation. And they all, they all not one person has ever out of hundreds said, oh, no, that's not right. Yeah, yeah, I see your point. I'm trusted to write a subjective evaluation of my subordinates that's going to be a major factor in their careers, but I can't go out and evaluate a unit or a person in an exercise or a problem and determine if they are competent at this or they need more schooling or less or whatever. So we're already doing that in our evaluations and our personal management. We just hadn't got to it in our classrooms. Okay, so we want to be able to put all these numbers up and say all this to happen and this is how I evaluate it. When I used to run the free play exercises at Georgetown, I would ask volunteers like reserve officers or friends of mine that had time that were uh, competent NCOs and officers, come on in and observe this. So everyone got three or four different observations from three or four different people during a mission. Okay, and I would find that 90, 95% of the time, the observations were similar, how they did the mission or the missions or whatever. So that's the best way to evaluate the intangibles. Okay, but we still are very, very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, when you were speaking there, it kind of reminded me of the distinction of before the fact control versus after the fact control. Mm-hmm. So it's like when you're making those subjective evaluations after the fact, you've kind of you've seen the results of what the person has actually done and what the consequences of those decisions were and you can kind of put that into the context of oh okay well what what did they what kind of information did they really have available and you can kind of give a more I think you call it like 360 degree view of that evaluation whereas I think a lot of what we do now is found in those checklists because it's all before the fact control before you go out and do something we want to make sure that you've you know, check these boxes yeah. and you're going to do these types of things. And then that kind of constrains people in the way they think and the way they act. And you end up not getting those, you know, surprise outcomes that you're like, oh, well, that was better than, you know, someone who's out of touch with the context up at the senior levels could have told you to do. Um, they want to be able to kind of take some of that lower level initiative. And you hear this all the time from leadership, right? they understand the the limitations to what they can kind of direct at the lowest levels and they want that initiative but then a lot of our system seems to be built up on this before the fact control as opposed to provide them some some leeway to learn to make some decisions and then review the 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 effects of that after the fact we won't be able to so on the terms of efficiency when it comes to budgets and money and as well as integrity and getting promoted, we want to predetermine things as well so it looks better, it looks efficient. Because the most chaotic situation is combat, of course. I consider it one of the most ironic things that we do is we want to operate one way in combat, but every day in peacetime and in training, learning, garrison, we act the opposite. And then all of a sudden, I was telling the guy I worked with the other day, and all of a sudden we want the light to come on when we go to combat and use all this initiative and stuff. For our country, we, pre- we preach it about. Some countries don't want that for a lot of reasons. They don't. They practice what they preach in combat. They want total control because having people at the lower end that take initiative also threatens the, the way they their culture is. But ours is it's wild because we practice the industrial methods every day with very talented force. I mean, on the simplest things. For example, I wrote an article on LinkedIn about why do we force people to come in on certain hours in office in the age of all this information technology? Because uh, I have a saying, I'm not going to hire you if I can't trust you to do work when I'm not around. But we take the opposite measure in the military. I want you sitting at that desk from these hours, clock out, clock in, and they're carrying a BlackBerry, they're carrying a phone, they've got a laptop computer with access to more information, all the, those devices, than we've ever had before, okay? But then, but I want total control of them. If I'm not seeing you sit there, then you're not doing your work. So we're contrasting the very way that 
has been proven scientifically to be more effective. What we're after is effectiveness, not efficiency. Efficiency should be a subpar of effectiveness. If you're very effective, you're going to become more very efficient. But what we tend to do is award efficiency over effectiveness, okay? And we got to get out of that mindset. I mean, I'm a guy that's considered very high-end as a consultant for my knowledge, ability, and what I've proven. I've won awards and stuff. And I'm still running into people that want to know where I was at. I need to be sitting at a desk. And I don't blame them. I blame the whole culture because they've never been taught to go out of the, the tangible mindset into the intangible adaptive mindset. Okay, so hope that answered your question. Yeah, you, you talk a lot about outcomes-based training and education. And I kind of wanted to, to pick on that distinction between out, outputs and inputs. So one of the issues I see at least with the, the defense acquisition system, is that we're trying to take this very complex um, technology development, technology that hasn't been developed. We're kind of estimating where it will be in the future with technology readiness yeah. levels and all of that. And we're saying, look, we're targeting the output. We have an output-oriented budget. So we're going to define this system. It's going to have these characteristics, meet these requirements. We're going to work our way back and say, what was that requirement? It's what are we going to accomplish? Problem. Exactly. It's going to solve that problem. And then we're going to budget for it. So we work our way back. So we're output oriented there. Um, but it seems that, well, the problem with that is you're making a prescription of what you're going to be doing in the future. You now need to shop this around through all these layers of bureaucracy or what have you. You have to get approval. And, and it ends up almost being like back to the inputs checklist-based. You know what you just said? Okay. When you what? said moving around the bureaucracy. So our system's built for the industrial age of trying to apply an information age or a adaptive system. Mm -hmm. That's my point. Major General Mullen, the commanding general training and education command who I work for, it's moving the arm, the Marine Corps forward along with the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger. We were one day in his office. He said, you know, the way we evaluate what we're evolving to, outcomes, has to be different than the way we're evaluating now. Exactly, sir, because you're, the way you're evaluating right now, when you come in, they come in with a checklist and say, do you have these documents? Are you doing these things? Right. In an outcomes-based learning environment, I'm going to randomly select six people and pull them out right now knowing where they're at, and I'm going to test them using an assessment that matches how I'm teaching them. That tells me, are people learning? Are you doing the right thing? Of course it does. I don't have to go down the offices and go through all your documents and then see you know, see you have all the right tools in your classroom and you're meeting the right hours. I don't need to do any of that. I just like, I'll selectively, randomly by number, pull out something. You know, there'll be students that have a bad day, of course, but not a lot. But right now, our systems, our structures do not match what we want to achieve. So if you go to an outcomes-based, you're going to have to go to a flatter organization. That's another good one I do. I ask my audience things like, what are the basics? I get 20 different answers in my audience, especially among sergeant majors, senior NCOs. All great people, they see the basics as discipline, not mass discipline, not self-discipline. Big difference. Or with officers, I go, what's a flat organization? I get 50 different answers. But if I'm really going to move to an outcomes-based system where the outcomes go down to each individual class, what I want to achieve when you leave this class after an hour or two hours or three hours, what's my outcome? You walk out of here confident in how to do an ambush, okay? There's 10 different tools I can use to teach you that. It's up to the teacher based on their time, their experience, and uh, and an assessment of their students, what method they want to use. I don't care as long as you reach that outcome, okay? And the test may be a simple tactical decision game given an output. They can display at least confidence on how to do an, an ambush, which is to move to a point, achieve surprise, and destruction of the enemy through some type of fires, casually producing weapon in a given amount of time, and then break contact and get your unit back, most of it back, to your friendly position or whatever. I'm just being overall defining what it means. But my point is you have to build your structures around your learning doctrine and your your fighting doctrine. Right now, the, the bureaucracy controls everything. People don't understand that if I have an office that's a flat organization based on outcomes, I'm going to reorganize the people I have based on their skills and strengths and weaknesses. I know we hate that word weakness. We all have them based on the problem that I've been given to solve. 
So this week, you may lead the team because you're really good at analysis. Next week, Don may lead the, the team because he's good at big strategic problems and, and how to solve those problems. Every week or every month, every time I have a new problem, I may ta- retask, organize based on the skills of my people. We don't like that. We like order and discipline, mass discipline, okay? We like process because we're comfortable in it because we can see it, we can explain it, we can touch it, and everyone's been educated that way in public schools most of their life. They might score the greatest grade because they have the best memorization ability but be the worst at dealing with constantly challenging complex problems, okay? Uh, I've seen that over and over. You have to align. I call it parallel evolution in my book, Path to Victory. When you evolve to a new system, particularly like a new fighting doctrine, to combat what you think you're going to deal with in the future, everything has to evolve with that. So they're supporting one another. So there's synergy among all of them. Not synchronization. There's a big difference. So they're, they mutually support each other. In a military, that means I want to do maneuver warfare, but maneuver warfare is an incredible doctrine, the way it was done with John Boyd, John Smith, Bill Lind, G.I. Wilson, uh, Bruce Good, all those guys, great brand guys. But we did that, doc- Mike Wiley. We, we formed this great doctrine, well-written, but we kept the industrial age systems all around it. So you see a conflict there. We have a personnel management system that, that was written for mass mobilization that manages people that are supposed to be leading in a maneuver warfare sense, making important decisions at the lowest level with little guidance or no guidance. The ability to change an order because it's irrelevant at the point that I was supposed to do it. We don't have none of that in, in place. I can have one person give me a bad evaluation for nothing more than I disagree with them. I made a decision that was more relevant, but they have the power to destroy my career. How am I building moral courage that way then? Okay, I'm not. I have a system that promotes uh, careerism over professionalism. I have a system that promotes zero defects over the ability to learn from mistakes as long as it's not a mistake, the same mistake twice, or as long as it's not an immoral and ethical mistake. Okay, so that's the problem we have. In the learning system is I have the entire structure that's built around the industrial age inputs in mass memorization over a system where I, I want to develop people to be adaptive and critical thinkers alongside task training, not one or the other t- together. Yeah, let me give you an interpretation of where I think some of the output-oriented kind of uh, planning and execution might go wrong. So I think a, a lot of the industrial era mindset was you can't have people make up independent plans on their own because they, in order for them to create an efficient, as opposed to effective, an efficient plan, they need to be coordinated with what everyone else in the organization is doing simultaneously. And so that can only be coordinated from the top. And so you get these flows of information to the top. And in order for that to be optimized and then have orders come back down, they basically have to target one outcome, right? Like there's this one ideal plan, this one method, um, this one thing that we're all going to be doing and we're all going to be working towards that. So I think one of the issues here is in reality, as what we've been seeing, especially in the modern era, there's lots of uncertainty. There's lots of change that happens. Constant. And, And one of the issues here seems to be that, well, if someone has to make a change, then they they kind of are trying to be forced back into whatever that centralized plan was. And so the problem with that view of outcomes-focused planning is that you're targeting one thing. You're not, like, allowing for a diversity of solution spaces within the intent of overall coordination um, that allows people to take that initiative at the lower level as they see that there's new information, they, they should use their experience to adapt and to, and to make better uh, decisions. What do you think about that interpretation? It's very good of what happens now. So what's missing from that to, to align it where we have a speed of decision, we use more of our talent to better approach complex problem solving or new solutions to complex problems in complicated environments. What is the missing thing about that? What do you think is missing out of that? What you just described is what happens all the time. Mm-hmm. The missing part of that is 
we don't redefine the role of supervisors and bosses. Okay. Great example is the Germans versus the French and British in World War One. The Germans adopt a new defensive doctrine. And what do they do? They empower their lowest level battalion commanders not only to make decisions in their sector that may be subordinate a division commander, but they, they had a culture to do that. So they sped up their decision making. The guy on the spot could make the decisions. So they had to redefine the hierarchy. Okay. Uh, now your definition of your hierarchy changes. On the other hand, the Allies, what do they do? Everything went more centralized, more detailed planning, more control. Okay. Yeah, they eventually won for a lot of reasons, but it had nothing to do that because one, the doctrine of the Germans was worse or better. It was because again the Germans tried to fight everybody. As I say, they made enemies faster than they could kill them. Okay. So there's just no way they could win. They were just overpowered. But that doesn't ignore the fact that they did it better because they pushed people first. So you have to redefine your hierarchy. Your hierarchy in an outcomes-based is there to harmonize the efforts, not synchronize, but to harmonize the efforts. So every once in a while, you're a leader of, uh, of this project, and I have a leader over here of this project, and Alan's over here, and then Susan is this project. At some point, i got to get you together to crosstalk just to say, what are you doing? I still designate a shore punk. What's my main effort in my organization, regardless of military or not? But maybe, oh, Susan's over here really accomplishing a lot, and she needs help from Eric's organization or task force to get where she's going. So like you said, so there's a harmony of effort, okay? You may be working on two diverse projects so you don't have a redundancy of effort. You're at least cross-talking. That's what we want. So now the hierarchy becomes one of where it's control to where it uses influence. Big difference. I keep trying to get the U.S. Army to change command control to command and influence. Okay, and maneuver warfare is command and influence, not command and control. I want to get away from control. Okay, I want to get to where I influence what needs to be done. So you have to readdress your, what your hierarchy does. Your hierarchy is, I've, I've got someone above me that's more experienced for me. They've earned that spot. I, I don't have a problem with that, okay? But I also got teachers that are competent, and I want to make better. Their role becomes, instead of a boss, it becomes a mentor, okay? They're stepping in to help them get better. A real mentor or a real commander in a maneuver warfare organization or a learning organization but moves from being a decision-maker, controller, or they still make decisions, of course. They have to have the final say. You have to have some of that. But they become more of a mentor and a developer than a control person. They move from control to mentor. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that at some of the Marine Corps schools where people move from being controllers to harmonizers to mentors, okay, and facilitators. So that's the problem. When you were... That was well said, exactly what goes on today. We want to do outcomes or outputs. I, I like outcomes, okay? Outputs is part of inputs. You input it, you output it. It's still numbers. It's still what I want to achieve really without measuring the effectiveness. I'm efficiency. So what you just described is exactly what organizations don't redefine. They want to reform or evolve. It's really evolve instead of reform. Okay, reform means I'm totally changing one aspect. Evolve means I'm I've already do some things well. Maybe I just want to get a little bit better. But you have to redefine the hierarchy. And we don't do that. Germans did it, okay, for World War II. We went to the airline battle in the 80s. Great field manuals written. Doctor for the U.S. Army, 1982 and 86 manuals. Closest to maneuver warfare we've ever gotten. But we still did not redefine the hierarchy. We still did not redefine the personnel system, which was based on the industrial age. So you have conflicts. You want initiative. You want agility. There was the acronym Agility, Initiative, Depth, and Synchronization. Of course, John Boyd said synchronization did away with all the other three because the only thing you synchronize, you don't synchronize people, you synchronize watches. When you synchronize, you make everybody mechanical. It goes back to the industrial age. You want to do things, the real definition of adaptability and agility, initiative, moral courage, then you've got to build systems that support that. What we have instead is we preach 
The Army is great at preaching mission command all the time, but all the systems work against it. In an optics tactic environment, there are several opportunities to learn through mistakes. We don't have that. We have zero defects. Okay, I told you the story before we got started. Me, guys looked at my file and said, man, you have a perfect file except for this three-month command evaluation report that I got for telling the, the senior raider something he didn't want to hear when I was asked. I told him the truth. I get punished. Okay, people see that happen. What do they do? They don't. I'm not going to be using initiative. I'll tell that guy what he wants to have. They're not wrong or evil in most cases, but they're just being survivors. They they start sacrificing creativity for security. That's what our systems do. But we preach the in the open. We preach adaptability, mission command, outcomes, intangibles. But in reality, we promote the opposite of those. So you've got everything has to be created together to get the desired outcome you want. Can't be one and stand alone. So to answer your question again, I repeat myself because it's so important. It's like me stomping my foot for an answer. You've got to evaluate the row of hierarchy. Now, if you want a top down where all the decisions stem from the all the information flows up and all the decisions flow down, then you keep that. If you've decided that's the best thing for whatever you do, that's fine. Again, one of the things people when they say come to me and talk about OBTNE or OBL outcomes based learning, what we've redefined it in the Marine Corps. Because learning encompasses training and education together. They're interchangeable, actually. It's all or nothing. Oh, well, you're using outcomes, so we can't uh, do this or that. Good example, I was I had a, a, a talk. I don't do lectures. I do talks because I get people to answer their questions. But this uh, retired gunnery sergeant, brilliant lady that teaches at the air traffic controller school, she said, there's certain things we've got to do that's a checklist. And I like your stuff, you know, where the instructor can choose and the student can choose and they have to make. But there's just some things we've got to do by the. I said, you're not. If that's what you determine you've got to do as a course, then you do that. It's the same with maneuver warfare. Maneuver warfare is the wrong word for it because you've got maneuver versus attrition warfare. Well, there's points where I have to do attrition warfare. That's the best thing. That's all I have. I don't want to take those options away. In a, a mission command or outcomes-based environment, I don't want to take the person on the spot's ability to choose what method to use. Okay, it's not all or nothing. Yeah, I, I like the uh, distinction there that you brought up between like the top down versus the bottom up, yeah. and you you do need both, right? But I, f- I feel like there's tended, in the, especially in the 20th century institutions that we have, that they've focused on the top down potentially too much. And again, like what I said earlier, I always, in my mind, I kind of trace that back to kind of German notions of bureaucracy of the historical school and even the German general staff concept, which was brought over in a, and you brought it up earlier, Elio Root, um, secretary of war back in the early 1900s. He, he implemented what he thought was the general staff concept. And that had a lot of potentially negative consequences on, on the culture and the organization of the army. But I think I've become kind of convinced over time that what the Americans did was a really bad implementation of what the Germans were actually doing there. And we've been bouncing around these terms a little bit, mission command, Aufstrugstatik, which is tactic, yep, yeah. it's the, which the is a German bad word. translation of mission command. So, can you so that's exactly what your book is about. So, can you just talk a little bit about what is mission command and and how does that kind of align uh, commander's intent with the ability for the lower levels to take initiative? learn and and improve so the biggest misunderstanding of mission command it's not a free-for-all and the army just wrote a new manual called uh, 6-0 mission command which the manuals is got great army level examples well it's got alvin york as an example which is good alvin york in war one the tennessee that won the medal of honor my criticism of the manual, which just came out in July, was they need more examples of a garrison. They need more examples in the office and staff how to apply mission command. But before you can effectively do mission command, you've got to establish trust. Without trust, you have no mission command. And before you establish trust, you have to develop your people to how to make decisions at higher levels through the learning. See. Now there's no excuse for us not to do mission command in the U.S. military because we have never known more about how we learn, how people learn. We've never more learned more about leadership, about the value of attributes, traits, skills, knowledge. We have a great 
grasp these things. But it's all about egos. You know, people feel like, again, our management, personnel management systems still are stuck in the industrial age while we preach something in the 21st century. Our mission command is a very successful system uh, in the right context if you've got the right culture. That's what uh, Martin Samuels talks about in Fog of War. He talks about it's not all or nothing. You've got to take different variants. So I just I just reviewed his book, incredible book by Martin Samuels, because the main point of it is you have to take the right mix, the right aspects of each command doctrine and apply it to what your people can do and what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, and that takes incredible about education and professionalism. So Mission Command was again developed because the Germans didn't have the resources, they didn't have the manpower, and they were surrounded by everyone. So starting with Frederick the Great, they developed a system that focused on people, focused on decision-making, focused on quick initiative. Because if you wait for orders, the it might be a fleeting moment. The opportunity goes away. So that's why they pushed it. It, it began, Optic actually was developed uh, in the late 1700s as how the, the king empowered the Yonker class, the elite of Prussia. Okay, you follow what I need done, and I'll give you the latitude to do it. And then it evolved. It officially didn't become in doctrine until 1905. It was talked about in what was called the Military Bi-Weekly Newsletter, which was articles written by anybody. And it began being mentioned in 1888, Optics Tactique. But it was, it's more of a cultural thing. The culture thing is I'm going to develop you to be confident. I want to develop you on character, strength of character. I want you to accept responsibility, love making decisions, and stand up for your decisions, even in the face of your superiors, in the face of the enemy. Because the Germans realize on the battlefield there's nowhere more isolated than a commander on the battlefield at any level. Okay, the strain of responsibility is incredible because you're making life or death decisions. You're making decisions for your country at all levels, win or lose, okay? So they they focused on development of strength of character. That meant they began developing a system of learning in the late 1850s uh, that focused on development of character and decision-making, which took a lot of different tools and combine it, but it all focused on your ability to make decisions, justify your decision, and then stick with it or change based on the situation. I wanted to create the type of leader that, Eric, you're already out. I'm in this building, but you're down the street here. And you're down the street, and you see, I gave you an order to seize that building, but you're like, wait, when he gave that order an hour ago, that building was relevant, but now there's it's not relevant. But his intent which is more important, that's the higher-level contract. His intent is I've got to seize control of this river crossing, and from that building I can't do it. But from this building I can. So I'm going to change this order and seize this without having to ask for permission. So uh, and the reason we studied the Germans, the Germans had terms for all that. Okay, They had terms for changing the mission based on a changing situation. No, one, no other nation does. Okay, Again, the focus was on the development of strength of character, the act of the joy and responsibility in making a decision, the moral courage to do it. What does the commander owe you? The commander owes you a clear, concise intent, two to three levels up, that in the midst of conducting what he wants, you have the flexibility to do it the way you think to meet that intent. We could easily do it in garrison every day, okay? We don't. The micromanagement I see, the what I call the pursuit of perfection, the paper has to, I'm going to assume the general has to have this slide perfect. I've seen senior level commanders, oh, it's missing a period. You're all screwed up. That oversight's not lack of attention to detail. It's like the guys work so hard, the gals work so hard to get this right. It's But I've seen the addiction to the act of perfection, seeking to get everything perfect that nothing gets done in a timely manner. Instead of going for the 80% solution, we go for the perfect solution. Again, it goes back to egos. i got to prove I'm smarter than you because we have an industrial age personnel management system. Just saying, hey, what's relevant is what you accomplished, not how you got there, as long as it's morally and ethically right. So we're so focused on how we got there 
and what to get there versus looking at a person for their strengths while they avoid their weaknesses. Okay, so when you talk about mission command, it's more than just empowering people to accomplish something. It's a whole culture. Everything has to be structured around it. And like I said earlier, people that the hierarchy has to be addressed, meaning the structure, you don't have to have. Right now, we have 10 layers of hierarchy. Guess who used to use 10 layers of hierarchy? The French. Napoleon. Napoleon. (laughs) All armies have because of communications, because of Spanish control, because of education, because of understanding of the time, because of weapons ranges. Today, we still have that. We still have the same force structure. There's no need for it. We only stick it because, oh, that's the only way they've done it, so that's the way we're always going to do it. The Germans, even in World War I, even took away layers of command to make it faster. Okay. So we want to do certain things, but we keep systems in place for no other reason than we've always done it that way that cause conflict with what the ultimate doctrine is we want, which is the ability for the, a well-developed person, not a well-trained person, but a well-developed person, at the point where a decision needs to be made to make a decision, they can make it without fear of reprisal if they make the wrong decision, but they made the, the decision based on all the data they had. Okay, as long as they're not lazy or they're neglectful, unprofessional, then they should be protected to make that decision. Okay, I, one of my favorite sayings is a poorly made decision well executed is better than a perfectly made decision poorly executed. Or a perfectly made decision, a, timely, a poor decision that's timely can be better than a perfect decision that's untimely. When I was at the National Training Center, I kept all these little green ledger books, hundreds of them. For every, I was in 52 rotations because we used to do 14 a year, and I was there three and a half years. And I saw it over and over, battalion and, and brigade commanders. The cream of the crop of the U.S. Army would never make the decision, a timely decision, because they were waiting for the perfect information. Because they had been groomed that way in garrison. A couple guys like Douglas McGregor that made incredible decisions were extremely extremely successful at National Training Center where they do the free play war games at Fort Irwin, California. We're not given brigade commands because they knocked the doctor and they knocked the evaluations. They did what they thought was right. Mm-hmm. So we constantly aim at the lowest common denominator, which has done as well. In previous wars, we had mass and overwhelming mass and people to buy time, as we talked about earlier. Over now, what we need is the adaptive problem solvers that may regard doctrine as a guide, but they combine whatever solutions and tools to solve the problem. We've not adopted that either. Yeah, I think you see on the acquisition side that that same kind of thing manifest yeah. where we're always waiting for the perfect information to make a decision, and yeah. then years go by before we authorize something. And you hear from leadership again and again, we need to go faster. Speed is important. Make decisions at the speed of relevance. But it doesn't seem like the lower levels necessarily, whether or not it's training or they actually believe that the, the higher levels will give them that support in order to yeah. go towards a mission command kind of concept. You know, leadership will say something like, well, assume it's open for innovation so long as it's not prescribed somewhere in the federal acquisition regulations or in law either case law or statute or, you know, an executive order. And it's like, well, now you're talking about tens of thousands of pages of regulation across many domains of knowledge. No one really can necessarily say, well, I have such perfect information about every regulation that I know what I want to do here isn't actually, you know, going against one of those things, one of those rules. So even though they tell you, um, you know, you can have some, some authority to kind of do what you think is best. It seems that, well, they don't know that they don't know, you know, that there might be something out there that might come back on them. And so that keeps them a little bit more uh, risk averse with being able to take initiative. And we hear this a lot that, well, speed is important, especially when you're transitioning a new technology, like right. you, you got to act on it. And and the same thing, it seems like in the field, you know, if you just like stop, you wait for the perfect information or there's a change in the situation. It's this building, not that building. Should right. I go back to my commander or should I go within the broad intent and, and do the best that I can with the information available? Um, it seems that we're still kind of back into the checklist mentality. Here are the requirements. Meet those specific requirements. Deviation from those require reauthorization right. up at the highest levels. Right. Because, again, we've created systems that reward 
The incentives all work against Mission Command. The incentives all work against the culture optics tactic. They say Mission Command and maneuver warfare, but they don't address the barriers. They don't address the barriers because, again, it comes back to ego. Well, that's a criticism of the system I came up under. No, things evolve, and we know more now than we ever have before, like I said earlier. So let's reanalyze. We want to really do mission command. Can we do it with the current systems in place? And I say we cannot. So that's the big problem, like you said. But what's funny is, like, they keep preaching it and putting it on every PowerPoint slide, so it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen because they're not – they've got to take an incredible commitment of time, resources, and brain power to move our organizations to do mission command they're not willing to do that they want to say mission commands the doctrine of the army for example mission orders are a subset of maneuver warfare and marine corps doctrine pamphlet one but all your systems build around that your manpower systems your acquisition system the way you operate in garrison all work against that and suddenly you're not going to go to the field and start operating that way Unless you're having a credible attrition rate and the remaining people say there's no other way to win. So that that's the problem with it right there. Our learning systems, which I really write a lot about, are not equipped, are not developed to prepare people, which is problem solving or, or learning through a, through a context of a problem. That's the big issue in any field. Teach people and then give them the latitude to learn, make mistakes, uh, so they can continue and learn from others. And and none of our systems are built to do that. Very few people do it that way. That's what we're trying to do at uh, with the Marines right now. And it's wonderful to be a small part of that because there's a lot of other good people trying to make it happen where we're moving from the industrial age, which is defined as, again, efficiency over effectiveness, to an information age. I don't like the information age. I call it the cognitive age because we need a lot of problem solvers at all levels to deal with the complexities we're di- that we're having to face today. Yeah, one of the issues it seems to bring up for me on the complexity side is that no one person can aggregate all the information necessary to make that perfectly efficient decision, right? Yeah. And everybody has local pieces of knowledge. Oftentimes they're conflicting with one another, and um, it's you can't really know who might have been right or wrong until until the outcome of that. And you know, it's very difficult or expensive, especially on the military side, to do those types of training like that are very realistic. Same thing on, on the acquisition side. You can't just build a throwaway bomber, yeah. right? Like those are very expensive. But I think the way that you guys go about training um, and what you're talking about with tactical decision games and the like, you're able to kind of break it down into smaller chunks or, or even into kind of a theoretical mindset and just like, kind of play those out in different ways and see it and see how things happen rather than say, okay, I know exactly what the future will hold. I know what the outcome is. What is that most efficient plan to get there? Deviation from that plan is a bad thing. But then we always talk to ourselves. We always say we're outcomes focused. Yeah, I know. But if we if we're actually <laughs> focusing on the outcome, then we're not really allowing for these mistakes, are we? Aren't we like focusing on the inputs here? Kind of, we're focusing on the people, their decision process, and how they reach decisions. Right. That th- that kind of input, rather than what was the out. Of course, that person, when you focus on them and they've created an outcome, they will be introspective and they will be considering that outcome. I, f- I almost feel like there's this kind of paradox that when you focus on inputs, like people and processes like they are able to internalize what the outcomes are and they focus on outcomes. But if you actually focus on outcomes, um, especially in a complex situation, then they're like, okay, there's this defined outcome. I need to reach that defined outcome because that's how I'm going to be measured, whether it's cost and schedule on our side or whether I'm going to make a promotion or, or I'm going to get a attaboy. Yeah. Um, how, do you th- how do you think about that? Cause I think about it a lot because – but, again, it relates to – the command, the, the hierarchy is redefined in your doc, the doctrine you want to operate your organization. Be it business, the way I want to operate, and war, the way I want to fight. So with an outcomes-based learning environment, the day this person graduates, I want them to be look like this and do this. The commanders have determined based on their higher commander's intent, their understanding of the larger environment, that's what they, they need to get to, and they develop their outcomes, support that. But the way you get there, the way you do it, is 
can be any combination of inputs. So I see what you're saying, but it's a misunderstanding of what outcomes and commander's intent is. Commander's intent is based on my commander's intent where they want to get the organization above me to, they define their vision of success. I'm still allowed how to get to that vision of success. But it's the vision of success which is the higher ground, the higher purpose. Okay? Uh, that outcome for the learning, my learning outcome for this class is an understanding of the ambush. Okay? But the intangible part of that outcome is I'm going to develop decisiveness and this critical thinking skills along the way there. The course outcome might be uh, to be a competent leader that is decisive, moral courage, and understands patrolling or is, is an expert at raids or something. And my ambush class is part of that sub-thing, but I am told the outcome is to understand an ambush. So it doesn't matter what tool I use. The outcome for the course is what I, I, I talked about, but it doesn't matter how I get there. So that's the difference. Yeah, you look at different inputs, but I can choose those inputs or work with others to get the right input. Or if the outcome that we originally came up with was wrong, we can redefine it. We go back to our hire to get their approval because we have time to do that. And so that's what we do. So that, 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 that on your part, I see what you're saying. It's good rationale, uh, uh, but it's a misunderstanding of what it's meant by the outcome. It's I want to reach this because I've defined it. I've looked at higher, and that's what they define as that on anybody or our success. Eventually, it gets all the way to the top and says, well, that's what we got to do to be successful. Okay, so it flows down from that. It's not just an outcome that's going to get me promoted. It's the outcome is this organization is determined. That's why the first people that got in learning outcomes, the top has to define what, what do they want in a clear, concise paragraph for example, the Army or the Marine Corps says the Marine, for learning, this Marine has to be able to do this or this soldier has to be able to do this in broad terms. And then the outcomes flow down from that, okay? But without telling you how to do it, it's the why. Okay, it's the purpose. When we achieve this outcome, we're successful. So that's what it means. Yeah, I think this making a lot of sense for me. I think what some of the problem is with the outcome is when you try to put numbers on it and then you, you get what you asked for in terms of specific numbers or measures. So whatever you want to measure, they're going to give it to you. Yeah. I think there's this, this famous story in uh, Russia where the Soviets were like, we need X amount. You have a quota of fisheries that you need to get to provide food for the population. And the easiest way to do that was just to capture a bunch of whales that weren't really good food for eating, but it got a lot of mass and a lot of, and it just created a bunch of waste and actually depopulated a lot of the whales, you know, that it wasn't getting to the intent, right? Like yeah. that wasn't the intent of what was going on. The intent was actually to feed the people nourishment. A lot of thought, the reason it's hard to write a good intent because, you know, writing less is harder. So you have to write, what, how do I meet my hire's intent in practical terms and context of the larger problem? And that takes a lot of thought. So, like, that's a good example with a fishery. Well, I met my, I got all this well food fat that's not really good for the population. Well, that, that means that was not a well-thought intent. You know, the, the intent may have read, I uh, provide this type of food for as part of the overall food, but... It has to provide nourishment or something, you know. It has to be more practical. Still, to, okay, that means I, I can't go out and kill wells, for example, to meet that. I've got to do something else. So your intent, again, goes why and what we're going to do without telling you how. I feel like we always too often get into this mindset of once you define one thing in terms of a number, mm -hmm. then you start to have to do more and more. There's just more and more requirements. There's more edge cases and there's more things that yeah. you have to start. Like once you kind of go down that path when you're not setting a broad objective and then providing, I think when you're talking about mission command, you're, the Germans were thinking of it in terms of a contract. Yes. It's not a specific contract where you're, you're lining out thou shalt provide X number quantities at X quality. No. It's more like a relational contract, right? Yes. Where you, you, Exactly. You, there's some trust between parties, and it's broad-based. 
outcomes focus, just do the best that you can. I can't tell you what to do. If I could tell you what to do, then I wouldn't need your professional services. You're right. not a professional when you're just turning um, commands into marching orders or into like purchases for hire. Exactly. So I think that, can you talk a little bit about that, that view of mission command as a contract and, and what does that, what do you the think The contract, that that's a great one out of maneuver warfare handbook in the 1905 and 1888 field service regulations. My contract is you'll meet my intent, and in return, I'll let you figure out how to do it. I empower you, okay? Now, I may give you guidance if you want it. There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, I want people to ask questions. If I give you an order and I don't get any questions, then that there's something not good there. The reason is, is you should be wondering or figuring out, make sure that I give you a clear vision of what I want accomplished, what my vision of success is. And that way it's easier for you to figure out how you're going to do that. That's what it's all about. But then there's the missing part that I explained earlier. The missing part of it is at the moment that the situation may change, you have the latitude to change the orders that you were originally given as long as, again, it meets my intent. Now, the loyalty in return, the contract, the social contract, is just keep me updated, Okay. The reason I need to be updated is because I'm harmonizing a lot of different groups like we talked about earlier. So mission command, again, is not this go out and do great things as long as you don't get in trouble or make a mistake. It's a two-way street. Lordy's a two-way street. I do this. I got a great boss right now that says, okay, here's the commander's intent. This is what we want you to do in this program as long as you're doing it. And I keep him updated every day. This is what I did today. This is what I accomplished today. Because he may want to redirect me somewhere else. That's what that's called. It's my, It's not like, okay, I'm meeting the intent, but I'm not telling them what I'm doing. Okay? I'm meeting these objectives that's going toward your intent, but I'm not keeping you in the dark because you need to harmonize many other groups and people. So, it's a, again, that's the two-way loyalty part. It's not about, again, that, uh, okay, I get freedom to do whatever I want, and, and until the boss tells me otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing it. Now, I tell people that the loyalty's back... I'm giving you short reports, not because I know you don't trust me, but you need to at least know where I'm at right now, what I'm doing. Maybe you can give me some insights I didn't know about. Or maybe Lori over here, Susan, or Susan's group over here, has already figured that out, and maybe I can use that idea or use that process or whatever to accomplish my mission. So that's why there's got to be a constant two-way part of it, you know, uh, that's important. So it sounds like you're actually starting to make some inroads with some of these ideas into the Army, the Marine Corps, and some other places. Can you talk a little bit, what, what kind of successes have you seen, and what, what challenges do you think are still ahead? The first part is easy to answer. There's cells everywhere that believe in outcomes-based training or outcomes-based learning. You call it OBTNE. That's what it was a decade ago in the Army. And now I'm trying, the Marines are already changing to outcomes-based learning because, again, training and education and experience are the three ways you learn so there's cells all over there's courses that are using it with people there that believe it and get it like i do and they're applying it so there's a lot of successes there was an article written last week for defense news on how the army's changing their personnel system it was written i'm not saying it was plagiarized at all i don't i'm not i'm not really saying i don't care i want success but i had several people say because you have stayed with your guns it's changing because of my fortitude but it's actually a few people that have fought hard for this not just me successes army recon course there's a lot of great things happening at the basic school in the marine corps uh with with the academic director out there he's doing we taught together we did conferences in obt and e together he's applying it out there you know that's him not me but it's great to be allies together some rotc programs for a while Commanding General General Major General Smith was uh, a big fan. 2012 to 14, he was applying my stuff, changing a lot of how ROTC did more TDGs, more creek spills. Summer training became more free play oriented. So those are small successes. The greatest resistance is, like I said before, is our systems built around what we say we want to do are not built for supporting that. In terms of inspection, evaluations, how we manage people. The cultural mindset that regardless of your rank, you can contribute. 
we have a mindset that unless you retired as a colonel or above or have a PhD, you can't come up with complicated solutions to things. You have to have the resume or the credentials. So we have a lot of problem with that. The Germans eliminated that by saying just becoming an officer was hard enough. So you're, and we kept they kept the numbers low. So a lieutenant was just as respected as a general. Yeah, the general had more responsibility, but both were respected. In our system, oh, you uh, got out as a major, so you must have did something wrong. We take everything as a negative view of people versus a positive uh, view. So th those those have been the the barriers. Uh, again, friction with uh, egos. I think there's been a lot of positive discussion on the acquisition side too, but it it still seems like there's similar barriers um, on the acquisition side to actually getting that implemented. Do you think Congress needs to get involved or, or do you think that the services can kind of reform themselves and their culture themselves? They don't need like acts of Congress to change one structure or another or something that's in law or some kind of expectation that, that eventually goes up, whether that's through Owen being the president or, or to Congress. I hate to say it, but Congress has its own reason keep things as they are because it benefits them. I don't really think they want a, uh, a culture where you have lots of initiative based on more courage and, and sound character. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying everyone is like that in Congress, but from my assessment, what I'm seeing now, it's not like that. The Marines of all the services have the greatest ability to reform themselves, and they're doing it with this new Commandant's planning guidance I saw that was some of the best I've seen written. So they had the best chance to override those industrial age structures, hierarchies, and culture. The Army, not because of its size, but the Army tends to be the stepchild because it's the last land force committed. So it's harder, but again, they're amending a lot of the laws like Dotma 1980, the Upper Outlaw, which is the son of OPA 40, 1947. The, Officer Personnel Act of 47, which has up or out. You either get promoted or you're out. But both those acts also created a larger than necessary officer corps for mobilization. So we have a lot of officers that do very little. Or, you know, we have a lot more. The ratio of officers. I did an officer study that's online. You just put my name in officer study. It comes up. Where I look at good armies and bad armies and certain snapshots of history and the study. I did it for Lieutenant General Vane. Michael Vane, when he was the ARCIC director in 2010. And the uh, study says that the armies that spent the time developing their people and had smaller officer corps, where it forced people to be more empowered, forced people to take more responsibility at lower levels, were more successful. So they've been little successes. Uh, a lot of people are reading books. I hear people that uh, got retired at higher levels that said, you know, you were an influence on me. So, uh, again, my goal is to be a positive impact on others, help them get better. So th those are the failures. And the failures are related to, again, the, the mismatch of supporting institutions around what I'm trying to do. His new book is Adopting Mission Command. Don Vandegriff, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you very much. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.